Hello and welcome to Pop Culture Hangfire with Christian and Gabriel. The podcast where I try to catch up my friend Gabriel on everything I think he missed while he was being homeschooled and sheltered from the outside world during those formative years that we like to call the 90s into the early 2000s. The year, 1996. Bill Clinton was re-elected for a second term as U.S. President. On July 4th, Hotmail.com, a free email service, came online. Febreze began to test market its fabric softener. And the Hubble telescope revealed images of Pluto's surface for the first time. Wait a minute, you mean the planet Pluto in the 90s? Uh, I think it just says the images of Pluto. and It doesn't quite label it a planet. Ah, the, the good old days. The good old days. So, 96 gave just a quick recap where you're at. Uh, living in fabulous, sunny Southern California uh, with the uh, the grandparents. It is uh, a, lot of, a lot of sun, a lot of outdoors. Uh, vivid imagination. It's good. Life's good. Carefree. Carefree is how I would describe it. I think, I, I think even though we were years apart... I was also very living very carefree in 1996. <laughs> a lot of freedom. My mother gave me a lot of freedom. I had a good core group of friends that were like-minded. So weekends after school activities, we were all on the same page, you know, whatever experiment we were going to try that weekend uh, or event. Uh, it was a good year, 96, if I recall. Uh, a couple good movies came out in 96 that I want to talk about. Now, this one, it's so the uh, the movie Black Sheep comes out in '96. Did you ever watch Black Sheep? Mm-mm. So there was there was a uh, this was like the peak time for Chris Farley's performances, right, as a comedic mm-hmm. actor. Uh, so Black Sheep is one of the two movies that he did with David Spade, where they were like a a, a buddy comic duo. Really good movies, to be honest with you, like. If you ask me now, like for a lot of detail about the plot, I think like Black Sheep was about um, a man who was running for some sort of office and he needed to like keep his idiot son out of uh, the public eye. So he gets his personal assistant to like give him some odd jobs and keep him busy and away from the from, you know, like the media. And then if you look at Tommy Boy, very similar. A dad uh, with this idiot son who um who has to take over the family business when the father passes away. And again, like both of the same characters are almost playing the same characters. David Spade plays the same guy as as Chris Farley plays in both movies. But it was such really great chemistry between the two of them that the move that that you you forgive the plot because of like how well they they worked off each other and with each other. And just uh Chris Farley's charismatic personality, man. That dude was like he was really, really good at what he did. So like I, I wanna give a shout out to to Black Sheep. Uh, you know. So you never saw it then, huh? No. How about getting typecast as the idiot son though? You know, it's if I think the idiot guy almost most of the time, right? Because if I think of him in like 
in like Coneheads. He plays like the, the idiot mechanic. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? So, but yes, definitely typecast uh, as uh, as those characters for a second there. Uh, the next movie I want to talk about. This was a really fun movie to watch, and I've rewatched it in the last ten years, and it's still good. Great cast. So the movie Twister comes out in 1996. Have you seen Twister? I have seen Twister. Right, disaster film directed by uh, John DeBont from the screenplay by Michael Crichton. And we're going to talk about Michael Crichton in a minute, okay? But the film stars an ensemble cast, dude. You had Helen Hunt, Bill Paxton, the great Bill Paxton, Gary Ewells, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Just a crazy group of people. And for those who haven't seen it, it's just these amateur storm chasers basically trying to deploy this new device that would help them understand and gather more data about tornadoes. Um, grossed uh, $495 million on an $88 million budget. Second, wow. uh, second highest grossing film of 96 right after Independence Day. And this is a cool uh, little fact. Um, notable for being the first film to be released in DVD in the United States. Huh? Interesting choice. Right? I mean, I think it it's, was just... It's timing as much as anything, right? Yeah, because... Sure. because it, No, so it was released as a, as a, as a VHS because it was still 96. But mm. I think when DVDs were becoming a thing, you know, they were like, hey, Twister's selling well on <laughs> Home Office, I guess. Right. I don't know. Yeah, it has to be the timing there. Yeah, so what what are what are your thoughts on Twister? What, what made you watch that one? So, as I recall, that was a... My, my mother, like, is a she loves movies and uh i'm sure that caught her eye like you know kind of an interesting and probably you know you didn't have as much exploration of that like now you've got actual react like shows on i don't know if it's on discovery or what it is with that like storm chasers doing stuff but like that kind of opened up a world that probably really wasn't that explored yeah because when you when i think about that movie right like there's those exciting scenes where where you know like they get really close to the twister yeah. Um, and then they're in the eye of the storm and everything. But for the most part, it's just a like a, a good group of people that you kind of want to hang out with and listen to their conversations. Like there was a lot of personality outside of those very few fast, exciting moments of like the twister itself. And I think also there was a there was that perfect timing, too, for for CGI. Right. Like those twisters and, and the special effects in that movie look really, really good. Like, you, yeah, you know, like it's uh I think it was a good combination of a lot of things happening at the same time. I agree. Next up is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, from Dusk Till Dawn, 1996. Uh, action horror, I believe. Directed by the great Robert Rodriguez. Written by the great Quentin Tarantino. Again, talk about an ensemble cast. Sama, uh, Sama Hayek, Harvey Keitel, George Clooney, Quentin Tarantino himself. Juliette Lewis. You had Cheech Marin, you had Danny Trejo, you had the great uh, Tom Savini, Fred Williamson, uh, the even greater Michael Parks. Just a ridiculous cast. Such a great film. Uh, $20 million budget, doubled its money around $53 million. Have you seen From Dust Till Dawn? I have. I haven't seen it in recent, recent history, but I have seen it. Um, yeah, I think, same, it's one of those movies that I've seen in the last decade. Uh, you know, I forget that the movie's packed full with action, but there's that long gap in the beginning from when they, from when we meet the characters, 
to them getting to the border, you're like, because the minute they get to the border, the minute they get to the titty twister and Cheech Marin does his little speech, that is when that movie starts to me. Right. But when I watch it, I forget about, first of all, that opening scene is awesome, right? The, the, the liquor store uh, robbery. That's a great opening scene. But then there's a really long, it feels like a long time before we get to the titty twister. And and then I always forget that that part is there. It's almost like the politics part of the Phantom Menace. I for, I'm like, oh, yeah, right, Darth yeah, Maul. No. And then you're like, oh, fuck, I forgot there's an hour of talking between the next scenes, the next action scenes. Yeah, I honestly hadn't even thought about that. Uh, next up, we have, and now this is, this I mentioned it just because of the impact uh, into pop culture, right? Uh, Jerry Maguire. Did you see that movie? I, I don't think I did. I'm familiar, but I like i've seen it i saw it once right i saw it once uh, i thought it was good never bothered watching it again but ever but everything from that movie like has been quoted you know i think it was quoted for the next 15 years right like you had me at hello show me the money all these things that happened i again i saw it i thought it was fine oh and then there was the kid like the the kid that you know very uh really great kid actor i forget his name um but yeah this is a movie um Produced, written, and directed by Cameron Crowe, starring Tom Cruise, Cuba Gooden Jr., and Renee Zellweger. A successful film, $50 million budget, made uh, over $270 million. Nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Tom Cruise and Cuba Gooden Jr., and uh, I think he won Best Supporting Actor for it. Uh, again, made an impact in films, made an impact. Like, I think this was like... Cuba's like you know breakout role, yeah. Um, but I it was just uh you know romantic comedy this that this way just wasn't you know wasn't uh, up my alley. But again, I saw it once, and I can quote a bunch of it because it was then used in so m many references afterward. You know. Yeah, yeah. I definitely have heard the references. And then the the last movie I'll talk about. Now I am not a fan of musicals per se, right? I do. I, I mean, one of the, my favorite movies of all time is West Side Story. I recently watched the um, the Steven Spielberg version, and it is a beautiful movie. My God. I did not know that movie could get better. Wow. Like, really, really good. If, but anyway, not a big fan of musicals, right? I've never... I remember watching them as a kid. I think my, my uh, fifth, sixth grade teacher introduced me to them with, like, Oklahoma and, you know, the, the gamut of, you know, those films. Uh, in the 90s and 2000s, I tried watching musicals, um, just never got into them. Now, this movie movie is not a musical, but it it's very stylized, and it always makes me think of it as a musical. So, Romeo plus Juliet, Romeo and Juliet. This is the Baz Luhrmann version. Uh, this is the one where, where um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio plays Romeo and uh, Claire Danes plays Juliet. Did mm. you ever see this one? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I, I was a fan of this, and I watched it because of John Leguizamo. Of course, mm -hmm. he was in it, and he was fantastic in it. Uh, $14 million budget would surprise me, but went on to make $147 million, basically launching Baz Luhrmann's career. He's the guy responsible for like Moulin Rouge, Australia, The Great Gatsby, the new Elvis movie. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there was a great TV show on Netflix called The Get Down about like the history of uh, hip hop and scratching and and DJing um, a couple years back. So, uh, you know, like great career. The dude knows what he's doing, but he has an aesthetic and a style of film that he does. And uh, and this was one of those films. I remember watching it again. It looked cool, like bringing bringing Shakespeare into modern times. Where these guys are, you know, like John Leguizamo's character's got like a sleeveless shirt with the Virgin Mary on it and two like chrome pistols, you know, like that type of thing. Very yeah. stylized, very much so. But they kept the the Shakespeare lingo, you know, in the original Old English. Yeah. Um, again, I remember watching it once or twice. I've not revisited it in the last 15 years. Uh, but I remember just there was a style to it. Something stood out about it. Not my thing, but I I I, I appreciate like good art. Like the movie that automatically comes to mind when I think of like I appreciate good art even though I don't like the movie per se. It's like that movie Drive with Ryan Gosling. That's a beautiful looking film. Like looks great, feels great. I don't like the movie. Like the plot and the story, don't like it. The acting, I don't feel like there's a a lot of things I didn't like about that movie, but that's fair. But it looks and it feels great. You know, it's one of those things where you're like, that, that's a good, that's a good movie that I that I, I enjoy watching, but I will never watch again, probably. You know. Uh, but yeah, Romeo and Juliet. So you never, never on your radar, nothing, huh? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm sure I've seen it because I've seen like the DiCaprio being in, but never watched it. I've seen a lot of different Romeo and Juliet in my time. But not. I imagine not you would have with your mother and the, what you were allowed to watch. Well, and I, I feel like Romeo you and Juliet. West Side Story, and I, I was wondering. I know I've seen that, but I, I wonder which variant I've seen now that you're talking about it, because that was not something I revisited in my adult life. It's the one where Natalie Wood played a Puerto Rican girl. <laughs> you're saying the the best casting. I mean, so good, so good. Uh, TV shows that were popular in 96, Fired Up, The Single Guy, Home Improvement, Touched by an Angel in 60 Minutes. I think I know one of those. Uh, shows that ended. This one, uh, doing the research, I was like, oh my God, I remember this show. Now, the intro, there's a certain there's a certain little, well, listen to it and see if, if, if this was in your in your repertoire back in the day. Anything? I mean, it, the the little sound in the middle. It sounds familiar, but I couldn't tell you what it was. It, the show is called A Current Affair. It Ooh. ran from 86 to 96, and it was... um. What's the best way to put this? It was a news program, but it almost felt like a magazine. Right? And the reason why I say that is because it ran news stories and it, but it ran exposés that like that like mainstream media wouldn't actually carry, you know. Oftentimes, some of the articles and some of the things that they that they covered were overlooked by the by the you know the, the network news and things like that, right? Um, but they showed like um, programs that were uh, you know dealt with entertainment, with scandals, a little bit of gossip, a little bit of uh, tabloid journalism type of thing. It was a great okay. show, man. I used to love watching it. Every night it would come on and, and you know, you'd, you'd, you'd get that story. But that little intro, though, you knew you were watching a current affair. Yeah. 
very yeah. sci-fi sounding. Yeah, yeah, but it was not. It was like a very dark and gritty looking one. But I'm telling you, when you read it, you're like, oh, this is like a little, like a little, um, you know, tabloid magazine type of thing, except live. You know, it was, it was an interesting, <laughs> interesting. show. It was an interesting show. Uh, another show that ended. Uh, this will, uh, this one. I mean, there's you, you can't help but know this effing show now. Like it's a, it's a thing. It's just, it's just crazy. Yeah, the um, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, starring Will Smith. I think two notable other actors that came out of this were um, James Avery and Alfonso Ribeiro, Mr. Carlton himself. Ninety to ninety six, I believe, six years. I, when I was doing the research on this, dude, everyone and their mothers made a, uh, appearances on this show. Like in those yeah. six years, they got a. T- ton of actors to either play themselves or play someone else you know like actors singers uh comedians like everybody went through this show i this was a show that i know i've watched more than 20 episodes but i never watched the full season you know like a full season of it or the full series i can tell you how it started i can tell you i can't tell you what how it ended i can tell you some stuff in between um but but I remember watching it and just it was a fun show. It was a fun funny show, but uh, but never never a devoted watch for myself. Yeah, my exposure to it was um, when we had satellite because like uh, I think it was like Nick Nick at night, like the the Nick channel mm-hmm. would would play it pretty late. So I'm up playing video games past like 10 p.m. or whatever. And you'd get blocks of it. And sometimes it'd be a marathon. Oh. And I'd just have that on the background. So again, I also have seen, I think, a number of episodes. But like not really sat and watched through the show. Like I've seen some of the early. I've seen some of the later. There's been some, you know. I know there's some very standout emotional episodes. But but didn't. I never like sat and watched through seasons. Yeah. But again, like, you know, it started his career, right? He is where he is now. Thanks to a show like this. Yeah, uh, ended in 96. And then the last show that ended in 96 that I want to talk about, because there was an absurdity in daytime talk shows back in the day uh, with the likes of Jerry Springer and like Maury Povic and Jenny Jones. Right up there, there was a show called The Richard Bay Show. Does that uh, sound familiar at all? Mm -mm. So yeah, so this show leaned heavy on the absurdity of what, this show is you know like it deliberately played out the humorous part of like tabloid talk show format they created that you know like it was almost borderline variety show because they would always they would also have like games under like who's got the biggest butt type of thing it was a ridiculous ridiculous show um it was it almost felt like a reality tv show because these people were real you know that were on the show Mm. Or so you thought they were real, or you you got the impression they were real, kind of like Jerry Springer. You thought these guys were real, but they were actually paid actors and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, but I remember I would watch this show because again, it was like at the time I was, it was almost like wrestling. I'm like, is this real? Is this not? Is this, there's no way that these people hate each other, but they'd be willing to come on a TV show and settle things, you know? Uh, like you know, uh, you know, a black man talks to. Uh, a white Nazi, you know, that, that type of, that was, that, those were some of the, 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 the episodes, you know, 
Uh, but I remember, like, he used to just control controversy. He used to love, you know, doing those type of things and that the, so that the show would get headlines. Right. But it, but it was right up there with, like, the Jerry Springer show. You know, and if you've seen Jerry Springer, you can kind of get an idea of the Richard Bay show. All right. So, but yeah, I just wanted to call it out. They were on for four years, and it was a it was a magical time in the early to mid nineties when these types of TV shows were socially acceptable, and it was cool to like right. watch them, you know. And again, daytime TV like this was not like uh, happening after eight or nine p.m. This was happening in the middle of the day, twelve one in the afternoon, like crazy. A wild time to be on television. It was. It was. Shows that started in ninety six. This is a big one. Because it's still going on now since 96. But The Daily Show uh, debuts in 1996. The first host was Craig Kilborn uh, for about two years. Then Jon Stewart took over um, till about 2015. And then uh, obviously Trevor Noah is the latest one. You know, uh, it's a show that I've been watching for the last 12 years probably. You know, and it's had such notable not such notable correspondence as uh, Colbert. John Oliver, uh, oh, like Ed Helms, I think, uh, Steve Carell, I think we're, we're all, like, on that show as, as regulars. Yeah. So, yeah, no, uh, fantastic show. Uh, is this a show you still watch or no? Yeah, I mean, I still watch, as in I'll, I'll see the, some of the segments on YouTube, you know, like, I, uh, I don't watch necessarily entire things, and it's mostly here or there, but yeah, I... I still keep up. Um, I definitely watch. I don't know when in the John Stewart era. I mean, not that early. Probably it would have had to have been like two thousand like four ish. Okay. I first kind of started watching some of it, and then on and off throughout the the John Stewart eras. And then I remember the transition to Trevor Noah, and yeah, again, still, still, uh, I still watch it, just in its new format. And, you know, I, I got into Stephen Colbert because of the Daily Show, obviously, and the Colbert Report. Mm-hmm. And then I, I wasn't doing a lot of a lot of uh, late night TV or, host, you know, late night show watching. Uh, but when Colbert took over the late show, I started watching it again. Like it became a, like it's a thing now that I still like, like I don't watch the whole thing, but I'll watch the monologue and I'll watch like some of the interviews online you know, on YouTube. But yeah. but yeah, I was definitely done. Like after Jay Leno and David Letterman, I was like, nah, I don't need like late night talk shows. You know, like Conan had some cool guests. So, but it was more about the guests and the musical guests and stuff. Never really following it because it was back then. Again, you had to be up at eleven thirty at night to be able to catch Conan. You know, right <laughs> now you just wait for the next morning type of thing. Um, but no, I still watch the the Daily Show though, uh, and I still catch uh, the segments that are available. Uh, another show that started in 1996, The Crocodile Hunter with Steve Irwin, ended in 2007. I think that his unusual approach to wildlife is what drew everybody in. Uh, and his uh, and his personality, I think, is who, who, what kept everyone, you know, that his amazement whenever he saw a, a killer animal near him just just made you love the guy so much his appreciation for wildlife i was such a fan of this guy's work i watched all his like i think he had like four different shows running at one time depending on on what it was it was such a sad sad way that he well no i'm gonna say it was a sad thing that he passed but not in a sad way because he he died doing exactly what he would have loved doing um but uh but yeah no i used to love watching the croc hunter learned so much from that damn show too 
staple on Animal Planet, all of his shows. I, I, I very much remember that. Yeah, and he was uh, his his childlike wonder and his um, enthusiasm for what he did and for conservation really came through like a yeah. big influence big 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 and i know now like the kids have taken over like the kids are married one's got a kid or two of them have a kid i'm like wow that's insane and then when i look at some like well yeah they started in 96 i was you know 26 years ago no wait yeah 26 years ago mm-hmm. it's crazy uh let's talk about a little bit about death I'm sure this name will sound familiar to you. Um, Ella Fitzgerald, American jazz singer, uh, sometimes referred to as the first lady of song, queen of jazz, Lady Ella. Uh, I think some of the musical collaborations that she's known for are, are uh, I think, things that, that you hear the most from her. Uh, Dream a Little Dream, Cheek to Cheek. Uh, if uh, It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. After a career of about 60 years, she died at the age of 79, just from poor health. You know, her legacy is, I think, 14 Grammys. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my grandpa met her on a flight. No kidding. Yeah, um, the circumstances of the flight were interesting, too. This was when, um, hopefully, I'm getting all the companies and things right. He worked for Lockheed Martin, and... It was a time when if you had things that were very important, somebody, an, a, a, an employee would fly them, like physically fly them with the briefcase attached. He had a briefcase handcuffed to his, his wrist Damn. of some kind of sensitive stuff for, you know, because they work on kinds of weapons projects and stuff like that, planes. And uh, yeah, he, he was on a flight with Ella and, and got to, you know, it, you know, say hello and have a few words with her. And this is the no, same grandpa that like uh, was keeping up with technology. The guy who, yeah, the guy, what's where I lived, dude. You you gotta and, and read I, his books, man. And we gotta yeah, do an episode uh, about him. Yeah, he, uh, he had quite the life. Oh, that's awesome. See what a great yeah. connection. I feel. I, I I thought okay, well, old timey. She was allowed in in oh. in Gabe's house, uh, and then you have a connection with it through the through your grandfather. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know of her, but very interesting. I, I, uh, I honestly too like. So that was one of the stories that I only got fairly recently from my grand grandpa on one of the last like visits I had, where I got to sit down and talk to him and and have him, you know, tell stories. Oh, nice. And uh, that was one of the ones that came out, and I remember being pretty, uh, pretty impressed. Yeah, no, I bet. Yeah, very cool. Stick sticking with the old timey, uh, Gene Kelly also passed away in 1996. You're familiar with uh, the American actor, dancer, singer, filmmaker, and choreographer. I am. I bet you are best known for his performance in *An American in Paris*, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, *Singing in the Rain*, which he um, and the uh, uh, he co-directed and choreographed. I think, uh, what was the other one I saw with him in it? Anchors Away. I think that was the other one I saw with him in it. I think um, I've seen two out of three of those. And uh, another, I think, he, I think he got like an Academy. He he got quite a, quite a few Academy Awards in the late 40s or early 50s. 
Singing in the Rain was a uh I've probably seen that one the, the most. It's uh that's one of my brother's favorite movies. Really? Mm-hmm. That's so interesting that you guys <laughs> you guys are like so so <laughs> like in your thirties and you're like, Oh yeah, Singing in the Rain, the nineteen fifty one or nineteen fifty two film. What are my favorites? Haven't 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 we all seen it? Come on. <laughs> Um, so he had had a few strokes leading up to his, uh, death. Um, and then eventually just, uh, you know, he was severely disabled. Um, mm. and, uh, the last stroke got him in 96, uh, died at 83 though. That's a pretty decent age to be, to be passing away. Just saying. It's good run, especially having lived through, uh, you know, the fifties and stuff. Yeah. I'm sure it's true. There's a lot of smoking and drinking involved. <laughs> he, he looked like a clean guy. Because he stayed healthy. I remember watching uh, him in the 80s in the Academy Awards, and he did like a little song and dance, and he was probably in his 70s, you know? Yeah. So I I feel like he stayed healthy and in, in, in some sort of like uh, dancer shape, I would say. Yeah, but the absurdity is that cigarettes used to be doctor recommended. That people is true they were also. Healthy. That is true. It. And I mean, those people lived a long time, Gabe. I don't know if we're wrong or if we're right. I mean... Uh, if, if that was the only issue, I mean, I'm sure they ate better than so and, and moved around more. I mean, I know he did because I watched him swing around while dancing in the rain. So he absolutely moved more. But I was going to say this, right? So and very quickly, it's just a quick segue. If we used more natural products in our Coca-Cola and in our whatever other bad, quote unquote, um, things for us, um, as opposed to the shift that we've taken where we're taking all these shortcuts to save money by putting all these different preservatives and like, you know, fake sugars and things like that. Is there a chance that potentially because they were getting pure stuff back in the day that it actually wasn't as bad as it is now for them, for us? You know? Yeah, no, I, I think there's absolutely a factor there. I think uh, I think a larger factor is what percentage of the diet that you're processed type food so i mean natural ingredient also less devaluing of the things that we're eating like less you know i don't know a better way to say it um and then the activity the activity levels have gone down so far in general like uh I, the combination of that's pretty deadly yeah i think you're right i think i can't just blame the establishment i think we as individuals could could be out more instead of binge watching movies and sitting down recording podcasts for an hour and a half <laughs> well and, and work has shifted so much to be sedentary as well for so many people that's true right the the uh door-to-door -door salesman is now a cold caller and then just the uh, internet uh the last person we'll talk about that passed away speaking of old timey does the name jerry siegel ring a bell yes american uh comic book uh writer creator of uh one of the most famous well, the most famous uh, superhero, co-created Joe Shuster. Let's go ahead and make sure we say that. Um, Superman, the creator of Superman, the man who uh, who basically made DC at a certain to a certain point, died of a heart attack at the age of eighty-one. Now, I say made DC because he sold the rights to Superman to Detective Comics, um, that then turned into DC. But then DC you know, hired him to work. They hired two of them to work. So they, they did a lot of 
though they did not own the rights to Superman, and that was a long legal battle where they eventually did get um, get did get uh, some sort of percentage for for the profits. Um, the work that they did for for um, DC as employees was actually pretty great. I was reading in my research that they these guys in the 50s, 60s were clearing like close to a million a year, you know, with inflation numbers uh, based on the work that they were doing because of the popularity of everything. Uh, I think at their peak, they were probably clearing like six million a year, you know, before they left the business. Um, So, you know, fairly successful. But again, like, you know, they were being paid as as, uh, employees and they had no rights uh, or copyright to any of the material they were creating. So. Again, the legal battles that happened afterwards and them being recognized and now getting per- their families getting percentages and stuff like that. So, but yeah, Jerry Siegel passed away, 96. Um, let's do a quick little, um, this song came out in 1996, Gabe. Oh, and I'm sorry for this, but it did come out in 96. Yep, that uh, beautiful, beautiful song came out in 1996, Macarena by Los del Rio. For those non-Spanish speakers, it is Them by the River. (laughs) Ah, them. (laughs) Them by the River. Them river, them river folk is, I think, the way to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, big sense. hit, big hit. Um, the other only other call out that stands out to me from '96, uh, the Fuji's The Score comes out, the fantastic, fantastic album. Um, moving on to Tekken Toys, this came out, this game came out in 1996, uh, and I and it stood out to me because I remember playing this like crazy at the arcade, uh, and now you know on your phone and everything else. But Metal Slug comes out in 1996, Gabe. All right. Yeah, I think this was the first, like, because previous to this game, you know, like, the side-scrollers were about fighting and stuff like that. Um, yeah. This was, like, the first, like, like uh, side-scroller, like, gun and, you know, like, um, like, yeah, it was like a gun moving to the next phase, but it just felt different, you know? Um, yeah. But I remember playing this in your arcade and having a ton of fun, and then, you know, now you can play it on your phone and you can play it anywhere. Such a fun game. But uh, one of the top uh, 10 highest grossing arcade games of 1996. I believe it. Yeah, and it spawned, what, six sequels, uh, one remake, and like four spinoffs. Mm-hmm. This was the game you played later uh, on? Yes, I have. I think I have it. I think I have a, a, a ver- an emulation version on my computer right now. Nice. Humble brag there, huh, Gabe? <laughs> Yeah, no, no, that that was a really fun game back in that day. Uh, so, uh, with the time we have left, I want to do a new segment called Something Old, Something New. We just talked about the old. Let's talk about something new, something current. Um, I think both of us have been on the same boat with the TV shows we're watching. Uh, I just finished watching episode six of Kenobi. If anybody's listening, there are tons of spoilers coming up probably. So stop listening now. Uh, but you're all caught up on Kenobi, right? Correct. What'd you think? 
overall, I enjoyed it. I think it told an interesting story. And it's always like it. It was very satisfying to see some appreciation for Hayden in the role. And uh, what a job he did. I think he did like, you know, with relatively little, like, you know, up to a point, you could just sit there and be like, well, it's a suit and it's not. And it's James Earl Jones. So but he gets his moments and they're fantastic. I I agree. So, um, I, so I, the first thing is it's a totally, totally plausible story, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because of, of how it took place and how it happened. So I, I really love that part that it becomes canon because it, that time has never been covered. And now that it has been covered and covered so well, you're like, oh, yeah, no, that those things totally happened. Like they are now part of the canon. Um, the other part is like in the original Star Wars or in the, the first ones that came out, right? you get the impression that Vader's a pretty bad dude, right? But, and, and the times you see him fight, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're good for their time, right? Um, I remember, I remember watching Rogue One and that end sequence, you know, that oh, connects yeah. the two and you're like, mm-hmm. fuck, that Vader looks badass. Like that dude's reputation now is, is moving. Like this is what it, what everybody's, af- why everybody's mm-hmm. afraid of him, you know? Because before it was like, Everybody just walked on eggshells around them because they didn't want to see it. And then they showed it to a little bit of, of it to us in, in, in Rogue One. And you're like, man, that Vader is bad. And then I, I was big uh, on the the Darth Vader comic book, the one that gives the origin. Mm-hmm. And again, like a really cool bad guy, like a really uh, like full, like, you know, person like with the background with with why he's doing the things that he's doing and i think kenobi did a fucking great job to be able to bring that character to life to give you you know like the 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 lore of of um of uh darth vader but also like the action that he was still capable of doing and why he was feared and and what he was capable of like he is he is such a solid character in that that you really like you almost not root for him but you're glad he's there like you know like it, he fulfills that that destiny for the rest of us i think yeah no i agree but yeah so much fun now i will say i think and i said it to you before like the last episode was a little dark and not in the tone just very game of thronesy dark where it was hard to see a lot of scenes because it was so dark to the point where I was like, somebody turned on a lightsaber. I can't see anything. Um, I think uh, I think the final episode really elevated the show. I think it was very important, and they they stuck the landing for sure. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, now I I think there's talks of a season two, right? I've heard rumors of it, and that sort of thing always is a bit concerning because I know going into this, they had a fully fleshed out story and um you know an ending and obviously it has an ending but the rumor is that it, they altered things once they saw the popularity and how it was breaking records and said like oh okay well maybe we make some things a little less final so that we can continue to do this and and the thing is though again like there is that gap of time very much christ-like where you don't know what kenobi did right you just also Christ like go you, on. Yes. So I'm like, 
he could fill two, three seasons of Kenobi adventures, like you know, in in the in the Star Wars universe, right? Maybe meet Vader again, maybe not. I hope that if they do it, they're able to kind of nail down a bit more of their intended, like I don't know, their audience or their like take. There's parts of Kenobi that felt like they they kind of knew where they wanted to go and they hustled to get there, mm. and you could you know you could see behind the curtain a little bit almost like it wasn't they kind of just were like well we got to get through this part and so it just didn't it didn't some of the transition didn't hit some of the chases. Oh, you mean contrived. you mean the the part where where Kenobi and the the people who escaped the planet the rebels are like being chased by the armada and then <laughs> all of a sudden they're able to land and only vader lands it's just yeah, so just yeah. so we could have that fight and then he, they yeah. leave just fine and they leave just fine yeah that kind of stuff some of the chases for for leia where it felt more like a little bit of a uh a, a kid's comedy yeah because yeah, you just can't right. catch a small child you can't. running around which hey they could be a handful but um there's a little bit of of that which again i think that wasn't like I almost don't feel like it was even lazy. It was just they were like, well, we got to get here and we don't have a ton of time to like make this into something. So we're just going to we're just going to do this and then we're on to the next thing so, that we're doing. So a question for you. When when Princess Leia sends old Ben Kenobi that message, she's what, in her mid 20s, late 20s? I think they're they're like 18 in a new hope. I don't know how the timeline got nailed down, but I remember early, early stuff before there was prequels. Way back in the day, reading stuff, they were supposed to be like you know, like eighteen, maybe twenty, somewhere right, right in that range, like early. So, so we could say maybe ten to twelve years from from the, when this happened to then. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we got five to seven years worth of uh, stories. I mean, he could, he could. Season three, he comes back and uh, they team up with Princess with a teenage Princess Leia. Imagine that one, huh? I think there's there's definitely space, and so. It was never done before. No, none of the stories for Obi Wan were told before in any sort of visual media, but there were definitely books in the expanded universe mm-hmm, okay. where you had what happened to Kenobi on Tatooine, what did he do with his time, you know. Um, I think I've read one for sure, and a lot of it was they kept it local, like they didn't have him running off and doing a bunch of stuff, but he like got involved in certain things on Tatooine between farmers and Tusken Raiders, and there's there was definitely things he was. He, they filled his his time with the intervening, and we actually have a little bit of uh, a little bit of a glimpse uh, much later in uh, in Rebels. You catch up with a Kenobi while he's on Tatooine, oh, which is which I is canon as well. I haven't seen that yet. I'm still so not there, done there, with the Clone Wars. There is some part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I won't talk about what happens there, but you'll like it when you get there. Okay. All right, and that has been something old, something new. <laughs> Uh, yeah all right everybody uh thank you very much again for listening you're all wonderful individuals who give us hope um that someday gabe and i can quit our day jobs and be professional podcasters i i I get it it's gonna take a a couple years but we're excited now so we'll be you know even more excited when it actually happens that slow burn yeah yeah because, you know, after this, we try Patreon, and after that, it's OnlyFans. So, guys, gals, help us out here. I'm going to have to buy a lot more fans, I feel like, if it's going to be OnlyFans. <laughs>
<laughs> That's such a dad joke, but it's actually still very funny. <laughs> oh. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week.